James D. Fury, and this is Blackballed, the Sherman murders. I have been following this case uh, since it took place. What are we? Ten years ago now? Um, five. I, you know what? I, I have so much data swimming in my head <laughs> that I'm really just like, instead of becoming more informed about several things, I feel like I'm losing a bit of each of them. Um, David will straighten me out when he gets there. But either way, uh, we've all been following it. It's a high-profile case. Apotex is the name of the company, the pharmaceutical company. I think they're a generic pharmaceutical manufacturer. That's the company that um, the Sherman family owned. And last time um, we had Nathan Jacobson join David Wallace to talk about some of the aspects about the investigation that hadn't been released to the public yet. And David had a unique sort of front seat view when he was, uh, he became sort of the main source of a Detective Klatt who was the chief investigator for Jonathan Sherman and his family. And um, we we did the last broadcast. We didn't put any receipts up because I just kind of wanted to talk it out and, and see if we could understand it. I think we did a fairly good job. We're going to do the same type of thing tonight and re-explain a bunch of parts. But this time we're going to use excerpts from the Klondike papers that are actual communications between David Wallace and others. So. With me to sort all this out is the 1979 replacement drummer for Aerosmith, <laughs> David Wallace. David, what's up, buddy? How are you? I just want to, you know, just to give, uh, just to give Ryan Lindley another plug and and repeat the phrase he often uses of "Now you know how the sausage is made." Well, how's this for some sausage making? Before every single show, I shit you not. David and I have a conversation about how he's going to put his hair. <laughs> I am a big proponent of tying it back. David, um, probably because you women will throw yourself at any Chippendale-ish kind of hairstyle. I don't know what it is, but I'm feeling a little left out in the cold, ladies. <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> I can't do this. David, you have all these options. Um now you look good, I guess. I don't know. Fox, you look, you, 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 I feel like the the after picture in a cancer ad. Like if I went like this, then I'm actually the guy that has cancer and you're the good looking fellow who's really healthy, right? But since we're like this, you just have the prettier hair. Um, you how is your health, by the way? Oh, well, it's uh, the problem with non-Hodgkin's uh, follicular lymphoma is it's, um, it's incurable. And, um, you know, you have... Uh, periods in your life when uh, you have to manage the condition and uh, a lot of watchful waiting this uh, waiting uh, lately uh, got over hurdle recently and uh, knock on wood you know still seem like i'll be around for a few more months anyways hopefully forever but you never know david you pissed so many people the energy the ah, i just bit my cheek again guys i'll tell you why in a second um, the energy that you bring will probably sustain you for another 200 years. <laughs> I would imagine <laughs> people don't want you dead because they might want to kill you themselves. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm happy that, uh, that at least right now there, there seems to be some sort of positive aspect to it. Um, have you guys ever pulled out a tooth? Cause I did, I had a wisdom tooth that like a month ago I cracked when I was eating something. And it was just sort of hanging there. And yesterday I just got tired of it and I just yanked it out. And it's like that long. Mm -hmm. And now I have a hole that goes literally up to here. <laughs> so um, I bite my cheek now, I guess, because the placement of everything in there. And, uh, you know, you need good dental health, guys, because uh, it's systemic. So someone uh, please tell me what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> I guess I have to go to a dentist. Um, it's really distracting and, uh, you're going to see me go like this a couple times during the podcast because I, I'll bite my cheek involuntarily. Um, so David, I'm going to try to get you to do most of the talking and maybe I can shut the fuck up for once. Um, okay. The last show that we had, uh, was what four days ago or something like that. And 
it is already the most watched podcast over the last 30 days. Um, it has intrigue. It has um, the, the devil's advocates out there. <clears throat> Justin Ling um, will look at a podcast like that and want to see receipts. They want, they want to see proof. Um, they'll roll their eyes and call it a conspiracy theorist. Cause that's what babies do when they don't have the documents that other people have. I am going to approach this in a similar fashion as I did the other night, as if I'm blind. I, I want you to talk to us like we're five-year-olds because I think people have trouble when we start saying names. And um, so I may interject here and there in case you say a name and just keep going. I want to just stop and just like be like, who's that person? Um, okay. So I'm going to, is this the right one to put up first? Yeah, probably. Okay. Can you explain what we're looking at here uh, so that people listening and not watching can understand? Yes, that's a uh, email that I wrote as a last ditch attempt to try to settle things down in my neighborhood to Brian Greenspan, who was the lawyer for Jonathan Sherman and the uh, Sherman children, primarily Jonathan, uh, during the private investigation that the family was conducting because they felt as if they had not received a, uh, uh, enough answers and the proper answers from the Toronto Police Service investigation. Okay. So um, I, I sent that email because, uh, as explained in the previous podcast, my neighborhood and specifically uh, the area around my house was crawling with uninvited visitors. Okay. Let me let me read the email. So this is an email to you from Clat. No, it's from me to Greenspan. Okay. Okay. So this is David's email to Greenspan. Uh, that's the attorney for the Sherman family, but mostly Jonathan Sherman. Hello, I began helping Tom in November. I met with him and Mike Davis and Barry, and from there met Ray and then was set up for a meet with Peter. Like, already, I, I'm confused. But I guess this guy knows all these people. In a hotel room, which was required, I'm told. From there, I went undercover, had a meeting with D'Angelo, and taped many calls. I undertook many areas of investigation and then was dumped, and my real identity was disclosed to Kay, etc. Who's Kay? Uh, Jack Kay was the right-hand man of Barry Sherman at Appletex. Okay. After my phone was taken by Tom and its content, contents copied and then deleted, I of course. How did Tom get your phone? I, I gave him my phone. He wanted to uh, uh, basically say that he was looking for something and he'd have the team, the electronics guys, go through it. I gave it to him. Um, I pretty much knew what was going to happen, but I had to be sure. So you allowed it to happen because it didn't really do much damage to you, or? No, I needed to see what he would do, what his actions were, which would tell me all I needed to know in another area investigation I had begun. Wow, what a psyop. You're a walking psyop, David. Okay. Um, after my phone was taken by Tom and its contents copied and then deleted. I, of course, have kept all the original content stored beforehand. However, I was less than appreciative of the pump and dump tactics used by Tom and his team, to say the least. It's one thing to use my information and present it to the client as if Tom and yourself gathered it yourselves, but quite another to take it from me while also in harm's way by revealing my name and location to Frank D'Angelo, Jack Kay, and Glassenberg. Now I'm getting contacted by Kay's lawyer and the goddamn press. My family has been put at risk, and that is unacceptable to me. I understand that you don't have to, you don't know my name, at least Tom claims so. However, you, but he probably knew your name, right? I'm assuming so, yeah. A lawyer is probably going to be able to convince a cop to know your name. My family has been put at risk. However, I was promised a great deal, and I was paid blank through knowing how I was handled. I'm sure he claimed it was much more that I was paid. I think at this point, all the calls I recorded with Tom Ray D'Angelo, as well as all my meetings face to with the team henceforth accessible to any interested party. I deserve to be treated better, sir. I did this to help. And what I got was put in harm's way and dumped after making connections for your team. What prompted you to send that email to Alan Green or to Greenspan, the, uh, the lawyer for the Sherman family? Well, we'd had the creepers around the house and uh, thanks to Nathan and the installation of many cameras and uh, various other professionals who were also watching my house on my behalf, we traced uh, a lot of the numbers back to some people who were under an investigator's employ. Um, so it was very clear where the pressure, the intimidation tactics were coming from. And when we did manage to uh, uh, question one of the people, uh, they were 
really oblivious as to the reason why they were instructed to drive by my house, but they were told to drive by my house on a schedule and to make themselves obvious and then to drive off. It was clear intimidation. So I didn't know that existed. Like, I didn't know goons were like, you're on a need to know basis, goon. Just drive up and down the street. Like, that's, you know. Well, it turns out that these were just kids um, and they were paid a certain amount of money, they said, for the night just to drive around. And uh, it would be a core group of them, but they didn't really appear to have any understanding. Among those group of, of, of people, though, there were uh, at least four private detectives we were able to identify. Yeah, I remember Nathan saying that um, when he had, I, I don't know if it was he cornered someone with his truck or whatever, that he could see that they were just young people and they were scared shitless, <laughs> you know? Well, it's it, like was, mafia, uh, it was... Yeah, it's like the mafia was, hiring those little kids that are like 13 to run numbers, you know? It was just basically to try to keep me off balance. This, um, this came after certain revelations were made about my trip to Vienna and the team that I met in Vienna. And uh, my um, substitution of files for uh, a Trojan. Okay, don't, let, let's not get ahead. We're going to go in the order that we have. So is this one, can you talk about this one? So this is an yes, audio. That, yeah, go ahead. Yes, that you have the audio file. That was from the woman from the team in Vienna who identified herself as Alex. That was a message. Is this the one that you describe as the killer? Um, I don't think that she was the killer. I think that this was. The no, no, no. Sorry, was... sorry, sorry. I didn't mean above the actual Shermans. I meant like, hey, killer, how's it going? Like I, I heard it. That was her nickname. Oh, killer's name. audio. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So go ahead. Um, um, you know, I'll read it out and then you can kind of dissect it. And so who is this? This is from Alex. Alex, who? Yeah. The, uh, private investigator on the Sherman case uh, regarding Wallace going to Vienna to debrief. Um. Can you reiterate quickly just an elevator thing of the Vienna, how you got to Vienna and where you were and why you were there and who you're meeting? Yes, I was invited to go to Vienna by uh, Adam Pollan and uh, the individual he brought to our meeting. Adam Pollan is the best friend of Jonathan Sherman. Uh, he's the one who communicated with me. And he brought the gentleman, a gentleman who uh, identified himself as Johnny Walker, obviously not his real name. Um, we discovered his real name. We'll get to that. Um, was, it Alex Clancy was, Mc, of, was it Clancy McDrunkerton? Because, yeah, you know, Alex that's like naming yourself like Beach Boys 69, you know, like it's just, mm -hmm. I don't know. Alex in this was part of the team that was there. She was ex IDU or, or Israeli or IDF, excuse me, Israeli Defense Forces. We've since been able to, to uh, confirm that as well. Okay. Um, so this is the private investigator voicemail. Um, and it's to you, isn't it? Yes, and she's not a PI. She was private, uh, private definitely, but never a, a private investigator. Okay, my bad. Uh, I hate it when people start sentences with listen. That's usually when I'm like, oh, douchebag's talking. Okay, everyone gather around the douchebag. Listen, let me tell you how it works over here. Like that's, anyways, um, it reads badly. Listen, the most important thing that I want to tell you is that I thought about all your situation. And, and let's, let's, that's weird. Decide that I'm not going to ask you to send it by mail. I know it's very complicated. I know it's going to take time. I know you're not available for that. So the thing is, I really want you to succeed. This has manipulation all over. I really want you to succeed because I really want to find a good way to help you. I want you. I want to pay you. I want to have something good in this terrible time that you are having. So if I will tell you that instead of sending me the files by mail, you will meet someone next week and just give it, give Giving, give, give the files to him. What is that? Is she talking like that? I think it was. Uh, well, if, when you play the audio clip, uh, you'll hear she. Oh, this is English is definitely not a first language. I just got a flashback to Mordecai Richler's children's book, uh, Jacob Tutu Meets the Hooded Fang. But anyways. <laughs> um, okay. And just giving it to the files to him. He will take the files and give the files to us. It will be much easier, much faster. I want you to take your time and deal with your own personal life right now and when it will be a good time for you to deliver the files. Give me just 48 hours before you're planning to deliver it. And that, if she says deliver or files one more time, I'm going to lose it. I, and I will ask with the would someone I know, I will ask someone to meet you and take the files from you. If it's better for you, please let me know. And we will do it that way. I have audio, the actual audio for these files that I think I'm going to just save for a part three. <laughs> I might as well. Um, and sorry, guys, the, the, the transcript here was done by uh, like in like a computer, like an AI thing. I don't remember what program. So 
I apologize for the doubles and stuff like that. So, okay. Am I incorrect? Just the first thing that popped into my head, which I often spit out of my cry hole here, is that she was working you. There's a lot of compliments. I'm always wary when people compliment me. I'm like, okay, what the, what the fuck does this guy want? Um, she expresses empathy. These are two things I normally don't associate with like a special forces type of person or an intelligence type of person. Would I be correct about that? Well, not necessarily, um, but she definitely was uh, um, manipulative. The thing was, when they let me out of the hotel room in Vienna, they were sent something. Something came to the suite when they were interrogating me to let them know that I wasn't, uh, uh, maybe I was alone in, in uh, uh, personally, but I wasn't in spirit. And uh, how, far, were, how far away was Nathan Jacobson and his Seahawk helicopter team with the Navy SEALs? Well, they, they weren't there, but uh, a delivery driver um, was cleared to go up to the suite and did deliver a package which contained a, uh, a set of figures that could only have come from one place. So they couldn't, oh. uh, they couldn't um, um, risk me not making the return flight home to Canada. Sorry, connect that again. Uh, so the numbers they received they a package uh, as our debriefing was wrapping up right along the time that I might have been wrapped up myself. Mm. Uh, the package came to the suite. Um, the package that uh, it contained information. It contained photographs of the team that had taken me for this debriefing. It contained photographs of the vehicles they had used, them outside of the International Hotel Vienna. Basically, they were well aware of the fact that people were aware I was in that room and they were very close. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I got you. Um, did you send the figures? Maybe. <laughs> you know what I love about you? I actually don't know if you did or not. <laughs> like that, you you have this way of like moving a piece on the chessboard, and people are like, "Wait a second, that piece was on the chessboard." <laughs> What's going on? That's what this like, is. It's a game, and the people who've played it, they've played it very well for a long time. But five years is quite too long, I think, to have something like this outstanding. And I think it's time that we bring this game to an end. Yeah, um, I agree. Okay, so. Um, so the significance again of that email is that she wanted to get all these files from you and was uh, using your health and your family issues um, and compliments as a way of cushioning you. Did you send her the files? No, of course not. That would be uh, suicidal. Yeah. Um, but she cares I didn't about want you. Money. It's never been she me. clearly cares about you. Like, oh, yes. you know? <laughs> they all um, love you. You know, it's funny um, just to the audience. Um, David did a complimentary work job on me uh, with the Patrick Brown thing. And and, and I don't care. I, I actually think it's really fascinating that I was worked by David during the Patrick Brown thing because I just, first of all, I don't have a dog in the fight. And I thought it was interesting. I I I, I so don't care that, that that happened. But once you complimented me in the summer and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> what's, what's going on here? What's really going on here, David? And um, it turns out you were just complimenting me. So that was kind of fun. I, I have a hard time um, sort of surfing through the lies of people that are in that world, like this Alex person. Because I, 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 I read that or I would hear that. And as soon as I hear someone be all um, unsolicited in their politeness and compliments and everything like that, I immediately, like a, like a radar goes up immediately. Why would a smart investigator or a smart intelligence officer, whatever she is, do that with a person that she's got who is also keen to that kind of tactic? Well, you know, they've got to uh, they've got to play the game. I didn't say that these were good people. Uh, the matter of fact that this team was recommended to them by a rabbi uh, in New York who spoke to another rabbi who passed their names along. That's why the travel arrangements were made out of uh, made out of New York. Okay. All right. So I'm going to go to the next one, which is, can you explain what we're looking at here? Uh, yes, this is a transcript of uh, a conversation that I had with uh, Frank D'Angelo. I'm not sure if this was a body wire conversation I had when I had dinner with him or excuse me, lunch, or if it was a recorded conversation, one of the two. Okay. Um, and it's D'Angelo in black. Uh, yes. Okay. 
So D'Angelo, we'll start with D'Angelo, and then we'll, so it goes D'Angelo and then Wallace back and forth. Yeah, but you got to realize that in the end, Jonathan only gives a fuck about his take. Can I do the? Can I do an Italian? Sure, accent? It's not it. racist if I'm Italian, right? Um, Jonathan's all he gives a fuck about is taking that lemon and squeezing as much as he can out of there. And you're like, he's very strange, kid. This kid. I mean, I tell you, I look into these people the way he does business. He does business with a fraudster. This man named Adam Pollan. He is a fraudster. So who who is Adam Pollan again? He he was Jonathan Sherman's best friend. He's Jonathan Sherman's best friend. Uh, they've been friends since childhood. Okay. Um, yes, indeed, you say. And Frankie Angelo's like, I would love, I would love to solve this murder and have Jonathan's company and get a check for $10 million. Not for the $10 million, but then again, you see, between you and me, off the record. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that, Frank. I have a bad feeling about Jonathan being a part of this. And David, you say, well, you know, I certainly have looked at all this myself, and I get a bad feeling with these kids. I get a bad feeling with all of them, but this kid especially. And Frank D'Angelo says, he's narcissistic. He's bipolar. He lives like the Unabomber on a property that he made Barry pay big money for him, and apparently he has a massive gun collection. Anyways, so, you know, business is business. Everybody wants to make money. If there's a way that we can all make money, God bless America. Jesus Christ. <laughs> he's like... um. Like, you know, like the dumbest mafia character. Oh, you know what? I retract all of that. I don't want to talk like this. <laughs> what am I doing? Why am I needlessly putting myself at risk? Okay. Um, and Frank is far from dumb. Trust me. Far no, I don't think he's dumb, but I mean. Not at like, all. No, I don't think he's dumb. You know what? Whatever. Frank, yeah. And newsflash, he, he, he certainly wasn't part of the killing. We'll get that up front right away. Okay, so that's what I was kind of like, because I, I actually don't know, I, I don't fully understand his role. I don't think anyone really does. And we'll weed it out as we go. We don't have to do it right now. Um, but give us an idea, though. Why are you guys even having this conversation? How did you guys meet? Um, through my investigation that I was conducting, um, I became aware of several... Uh, recent and strange meetings between Frank D'Angelo and Jack Kay, Jack Kay being the right-hand man of, of Barry Sherman for decades, and not a fan of Mr. Frank D'Angelo. In fact, he had tried to uh, uh, talk Barry into getting rid of Frank over many years. He was a sworn enemy. Um, but I caught wind of several recent meetings um, and had determined uh, through some sources that Jack Kay was spending an enormous amount of time with Frank D'Angelo. And it was my uh, understanding that uh, there was a, a sort of a, a pact struck between the two. And there were allegations of financial uh, assistance uh, coming from one party, Mr. Kay, to Mr. D'Angelo. I was never able to confirm that. But they were certainly in lockstep. And Mr. D'Angelo offered to uh, plug me in with Jack Kay when he got back from Florida on vacation. And so are you doing this while you're a secret source for uh, Jonathan Sherman's chief investigator? Yes, I was. I was actually approaching it from the Russian angle. Uh, you see, shortly before Barry's death, uh, a party uh, made its way in and had a meeting with Barry that turned very loud and boisterous. And several parties that were present believed that it was a Russian group. Um, it was, but it wasn't. No, they, no way, uh, they a loud Russian speaking party? Russian. Pardon loud me? Russians? Loud Russians? That's impossible. Yes, apparently there was an argument. Uh, uh, Over it was, uh, they thought it was a lead, but I approached it through connections. I got Frank's attention through uh, some connections that I used with uh, Russian companies that vouched for me, and I approached him as a Russian national. Okay. Um, Let's go on to the next one. Is it that one? Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. 
I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Okay, this is a, a, a continuation of the conversation. They were fuck. They were fucking executed. This is still uh, Frank D'Angelo, right? Yes. Okay, so Frank D'Angelo says they were fucking executed, and that's my thing. And you say, and to me, you make it sound like it's family because, and Frank says, there's two prime suspects. If I was a police officer, I would be looking at Carrie Winter, who was a sociopath. Um, I just felt the spirit of our lawyer rush through me. <laughs> I did. Um, okay, it's just a transcript, and, and and it's real, so I guess I can't. I mean, it's absolutely. You've got the you've got the calls. Okay. Um, is it okay that um I tell the goon instead of me? <laughs> I'll be waiting. I, I don't know. Um, okay, we'll just keep reading. And it's just the irony. And he hated Honey, and Honey hated him. That house inside out, and Barry, Honey hated the fact that Barry was feeding him and my family, but there you go. He did what he wanted to do with his money. And it's ironic to me that two weeks before Barry is executed, Carrie Winter went berserk when they when the judge threw the case out and then awarded Barry costs two weeks before Barry was murdered. And you say, absolutely. What type of professional hitman picks up the woman who say her laptop, say he hits her with the, with the laptop. No, this is crazy. With a laptop, or I don't know, she had the laptop in her hand. And while she was in the bathroom, she was working on something or she was planning a trip. I have no fucking clue. All I know is that I heard from this Joe Warmington that Honey used our laptop and bashed her face in. But then you know, who knows if that's true? You know... That's what you're wanting people say. Sorry, who's getting beaten in the face by who? Well, you see, that was a piece of information that had slipped. He said he got it from Warmington, but the timeline doesn't add up. Warmington wasn't aware of it. Uh, uh, it was a detail that uh, was known by certain members of the private team who were working on that investigation. Somehow, another word had filtered back. Uh, Barry was, uh, it's not Barry, but Honey was uh, uh, badly beat up. Um, and she was coming out of her bathroom and the uh, statement that Mr. D'Angelo made was that uh, a laptop was used to cave her face in. And was that something that had been released to the public? Could he have known that by talking to Clad or one of the cops or something like that? Or Well, Clad and Mike Davis did. Uh, another investigator, former trauma um, uh, homicide detective, had uh, um, spoken with Clad. Uh, uh, at his restaurant. Uh, Clatt was extremely interested on what Frank may uh, know or not know and uh, wasn't satisfied enough to clear him as a suspect. That's what I was told. And while I was initiating the conversations with D'Angelo and we were getting closer to uh, going on with this little uh, charade, Clatt's uh, wife, uh, Tom's wife, who had been suffering from cancer for many years, passed away at this time. So I was kind of without his uh, uh, overview and uh, it was another member of his uh, of his team uh, who was watching my back okay um if you're having trouble following along my only advice to you is to watch the podcast again <laughs> and pause it look stuff up people all that kind of stuff but you've actually been doing a pretty good job i think in explaining the details it's a complex case it, it's difficult to actually explain it in such a way where it makes sense because i mean when he, when you talk about how many people had motive to just not like barry and it's like dozens right like it's businesses it's personal it's family it's it's you know it's everything so that makes it uh, kind of difficult um i had contacted the um the toronto police today uh, i didn't hear back to let them know that we were doing this and that we were going to be uh, publishing or at least talking about information that they probably knew about that they hadn't released yet. Cause I just wanted to they see. They had me in camera, the Toronto police, uh, October of, I think it was October, November of 2019. I, uh, um, I had uh, given a significant amount of electronic evidence to the Toronto police service and 
also brought to their attention the private team and the recordings and uh, they never followed up and when my house was being stalked by these people even though we provided them with uh, uh, emails with uh, photographs with film footage uh, they they basically uh, they left me out to dry hmm. okay and and this is Frank Angelo continued. I'm going to tell you this, okay? Jonathan's got to be the stupidest fucking guy in the world. As far as I'm concerned, to have his own company being forensically audited, he's a fucking moron. Because of this, if his father did anything, you know, it's going to come out and it's going to make them look bad. I'm sure that they'll catch all the rats that worked there for years and years. And they were stealing stuff, you know? And if it's a and it's a forensic audit, fuck, Jack K's in deep shit. Alex is in deep shit. Craig Baxter is going to be arrested and they're all going to be in deep shit. And then you say, this Alex, he's still he's still there, is he not? And Frank says, he's still here because he knows where all the bodies are buried. Oh. I, I had baited Mr. D'Angelo. I had convinced him that Jonathan Sherman and the private team were ordering a forensic accounting. Um, that's where he slipped and fed me the other names, which, of course, I followed up his information and could see, indeed, that there was a great deal of theft counting in the hundreds of millions of dollars that had been taking yeah. place slowly over a course of decades. Okay. Um, so that was this one, I think. And we'll move on. This is all part of an audio transcript that we also have um, that I thought it would be uh, more beneficial to read it and discuss it than listen to audio and press pause. So we'll bring that um, to you guys probably next week. Okay, so Frank again. My opinion is whoever murdered Barry him because they want he wanted their money fast and if jonathan got himself 50 million in debt to barry in july and august when he bought the property on eastern avenue he didn't want to carry it anymore the best way to get that loan to be forgiven is to kill him okay i want to pause there i i i want to i want to know why if 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 you believe that frank is onto something or if you think that this is just one of the aspects of the case that makes it confusing. And also, do you think Frank D'Angelo is going to be pleased that we are playing this uh, or, or talking about this um, on a podcast? Seriously. Well, probably not. But in the grand scheme of things, I mean, after going through Frank with a fine tooth comb, I found that uh, he was indeed uh, uh, telling the truth. He had nothing to do with the murder. Um, he did have also a loyalty to Barry. Barry was his friend. I mean, that's something that I was able to. Didn't he to finance his movies? He did indeed. And uh, they had a personal friendship and Barry got a, a particular kick out of Frank. I mean, I went, I spent a significant amount of time on Frank D'Angelo and Frank did indeed. Uh, he was trying to, he was trying to get, he had some ideas and some insights. He knew that there was a theft that had taken place. He knew that some of these people, but Frank again was, uh, in a very good position with Barry and, and didn't try to rock the boat because Barry had some very complicated relationships with all these employees. <clears throat> okay. I'm just explaining to someone in the comments that it's, uh, oh yeah, I can talk. I don't know why I just typed. Um, it's not an email. It, this is the audio transcript of a phone call between David and Frank D'Angelo. Um, and the reason why Frank D'Angelo uh, probably said all this stuff on the phone is because he was unaware that David was <laughs> was recording the conversation, I would imagine. Um, am I allowed to ask you if this was the, one of the conversations? Because you said the Russian angle. Yes. Weren't you playing like an actual character in this particular situation? Yes, I was, because I had come through. Frank had checked out my bona fides through Moscow, and uh, I had some people back there who fed him uh, employee IDs, things of that nature that came back. So he fully believed that I was a Russian national in the employ of a certain oligarch in Russia. I heard one of those recordings in 2019, and I was, and I immediately, I'm like, I think that's David Wallace. <laughs> I think that is David because I, I, we weren't speaking we weren't like enemies i was just like wow that david wallace character was quite a character and then you're out of my life you know and um yeah that was a, that was a strange time okay so frank clearly seems to be concerned that um something happened to barry at the hands of someone that barry knows maybe possibly a family member or whatever but he's mostly spitballing right like he's not making an accusation i think he's just throwing something against the wall just to make a point or see if it will stick with certain inside knowledge that frank had he was making some connections that he thought might make sense um, and uh, 
basically, I found that Frank had a real sincere desire to see um, exactly where this led. Um, okay. I'm not saying that it wasn't for completely uh, 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 unselfish reasons, but I think it does need to be said that Frank did indeed have a great deal of regard for Barry and the relationship, while strange to people on the outside from everything I could gather, uh, was legitimate and uh, and it was uh, it was a relationship that uh, had been enduring and Frank was indeed very, very anxious to see the people that he believed guilty of this crime brought to justice. Yeah, that's a unique position for a guy like Frank D'Angelo to be in, you know? Like, yeah, I mean, well, it might be, and uh, he certainly I respect, I respect. I respect the level of friendship that he must have had with Barry in order for him to be so involved and passionate about the case. And I'm not They're just saying that to butter him up because we are releasing this shit. <laughs> I, I swear to you. Well, what made I, me? I um, yeah. What made me extremely curious to dig as deep into Frank as I could was the absolute insinuation by the private team that Frank D'Angelo was involved, even with a whole a wholly empty slate of, of evidence, be it forensic, uh, um, be it ancillary evidence. Frank was nowhere near the crime scene. Um, I didn't see a single thing of the information that I was privy to that would tie him to such, yet there seemed to be a very strong desire to cast accusations from that team. Not that they were convinced that they would uh, result in charges or an answer to this mystery, but that it would uh, set people off in another direction, which again is another thing that got me thinking. Well, if Barry Sherman financed Frank D'Angelo's movies, I mean, your suspect pool just increased by a lot. They're, they're pretty bad movies. No offense, Frank, but they're not, they're not very good. <laughs> not very well, good. you know what? He's making money on them, right? And I guess at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Listen, I I can I can I can criticize I the goalie. Guys, I can criticize a guy's movie, but um, I know nothing about being a businessman. So I'm sure Frank can school me on a lot of stuff too. Um, plus, Frank, if it makes you feel uh, giddy, I'm a rapper. I know that you're a lounge singer or something. So we could have like an old white guy uh, cultural appropriation concert concert or something like that, where we just like where we uh, play the fool on stage and battle one another. I don't know. I feel like I'm going to have dinner with Frank one day and it's going to be fine. Frank you know? acted with honor with this. I mean, uh, people would say that afterwards he made a call and it was facilitated by Mr. Klatt to uh, get back in Jonathan's good graces. And perhaps that took place. I don't know. I mean, I do know that I was told a lot of things by the investigative team that turned out not to be quite factual. Um, but I can tell you from sitting across from the table from Frank and going through everything that could possibly be going through that uh, Frank's intentions were, were good. He, uh, he was, uh, he was truly sincere in his desire to figure out who murdered his friend. Yeah, no. And that, uh, man, that would keep, that would keep me going in for the rest of my life. If that was my buddy. Um, and he also says on the bottom of this, uh, for me, the key is honey being murdered. If Barry was the only one being murdered, then there's a lot of different spotlights on different characters and players, but for honey to be murdered and Barry not to be touched and his glass, what does that mean, not to be touched? There was uh, very little physical trauma to the body from any outward initial appearance. Uh, Barry was posed in a certain position, and his glasses were left on the tip of his nose. Um, and uh, he was just, uh, there was, his body did not display, apparently, any of the uh, wounds and the, uh, I would call it, anger that was displayed towards uh, Honey Sherman. Yeah, that's kind of the twist in this case for me is that the the brutalization of how she died compared to Barry. Um, well, because the financial one, one theft think, like, was, had been left in Honey's, Honey's purview. She was, she was um, they were making moves. Honey was making moves, and Barry had acquiesced to this, uh, that Honey was looking to prosecute these people, chief among them being, uh, well, uh, I'm sure that your audience could put two and two together. Uh, no, I don't think they can. They're probably. Well, she had been defrauded. There was a loan that was taken out by a, a family member, and uh, it was fraudulently obtained for a value that was hyperinflated. And right. that little detail led to a lot of forensic accounting that was taking place where it was discovered there was many hundreds of millions of dollars of theft and uh, 
many other things uh, uh, going on at Apotex, which were previously unknown, that was going to be brought from an end to an end. Uh, honey was the target. Honey was always the target. Barry was in the way. Is it possible, I'm just throwing this out there, that um, they Barry was the target of these people, not necessarily for murder, but for something, and they just were like, we're going to beat her until she's dead unless you give us what? We want is it no, not at all, none at all. This was a robbery. Am I too this evil? Cover up a robbery. That? Honey was the, honey was the individual who was going to sort this out once and for all. You see, uh, um, another family member who may or may not be involved uh, became obligated to another group. That group, uh, hence the reason the sale took so long. Various pieces of the business were chiseled off, and uh, various other underworld schemes uh, uh, where dollars were. You can you can tell where this is going in terms of uh, pill presses, things of that nature were stripped off and farmed out. Then the the rest of the uh, uh, shell was sold. Yeah, the shell of the company. Okay, uh, where were we? Barry had a silent partner for a long time. Uh, uh, not that not that uh, he was fully aware of just how uh, deep in these people had gotten, but uh, hence the reason for the uh, Russian. Uh, not Russian, but this group and the screaming argument that uh, was had uh, a little while before Barry's murder in Apotex. Okay. And we move on. Frank says, so who's forensic accounting is he checking? Jack Case? And you say he's going through this, guys. Yes. And apparently they're combing through Apotex books as well as this investment he holds in Can Trust Marijuana Company. Hang on. This guy is doing a forensic audit on Jack K. Is that what they're doing? And you're like, yes, this is what I'm told. Yes, this is what I'm told. He's a fucking idiot, Jonathan. <laughs> I love how uh, Frank just tells it like it is. He's a fucking idiot, Jonathan, because he's going to open up a can of worms because he's making people uh, for, do a forensic audit audit of his own fucking company, which is fucking stupid. Um, is that is is that as stupid as he thinks? Like, is it? You know. No, but I mean, by uh, it was very, very valuable um, because the workup sheet that I had gotten on D'Angelo was completely different from the answers that I actually got. So it was able, I was able from Frank's answers to uh, find some new lines of investigation and drill down into it. And thanks to Frank, um, thanks to Frank and his answers, I was actually able to get on the correct path, and um, and the pieces started to fit together. So Frank was extremely. Um, Pivotal, pivotal in uh, okay. helping me identify exactly what happened. Okay. And, and it's Frank DeLandro again. You're like, hey, how are you? Oh, you're right, like a cop. Are you a cop? And you're like, no, I'm not a cop. <laughs> Remember that in the in uh, the old days, that urban myth? If, you, if you're with an undercover, someone you think is undercover, and you ask them, are you a police officer? They have to say yes. That was bullshit, right? They don't have to say yes. Mm-hmm. David? Yes. No, I mean, this is, uh, I think this might actually be audio from the body wire from our first actual physical meeting. Okay. Cause you're basically lying to him the whole time. Um, <laughs> second, you're a cop. No, that's the truth. English is your second language. That's a lie. Um, my, your first language is Russian. Okay. Where in Russia are you from? I was born about 108 <laughs> kilometers outside of Moscow in Evansk. Yeah, I've never heard of it. I mean, uh, I think the software, I think the software uh, got that uh, all wrong. But uh, yeah, 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 with these translating devices. That with that kind of astonishing detail, how could that be a lie? It's approximately 108 square kilometers. I've been to Moscow. He says Moscow is a beautiful place, especially this time of year. Oh, that's it. You're a Russian agent, clearly. Frank says, so, 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 I don't know. Listen, if they get Jack K, then that means that they're going to get Craig Baxter. And to get Craig Baxter means they're going to get Alex. To get Alex, that means that it's going to open up a can of worms for all, our off- for all of our offshore accounts to get over all, uh, sorry, and there, and there are three, four, 500 million in there. They're, that's what they're going to lose. And they're going, okay, that software's repeating thing bothers me. So he used the interesting word there. He said our. There was a group of people around there who didn't really like each other, but once they realized they were all dug in, um, they made the They all seem so nice. How could they not like each other? Well, then they made the best of the situation, and these fuckers were, were kind of pooling their resources, and, and, and since the finance guys were so good at it, well, they all uh, got their ill-gotten gains stashed into a lot of the same accounts to be washed. 
Yeah. So the, word, the word our is a very key word, our money. The word what? The word that was used there, our accounts. And uh, that was- That's what I mean, word. our, yeah. So he's got a stake in the game now as of that moment. That's what he says, anyways. And then we have this, sorry. Barry was, uh, so I would say if he was a police officer, I was a proper detective. Who would be the most to gain with Barry's death? And I keep on coming to one conclusion. Jonathan Sherman. Mm -hmm. He seems to be a very strange individual, you say. And um, Frank Delangelo uh, said he's cunning, calls him a name. He's allegedly saying he's narcissistic and sociopathic and bipolar and all that. And he says that the symptoms of somebody who has enough rage, enough rage to kill somebody. Eh, that's a, there's a lot of speculation in there. He could just be a cold-blooded killer who really wanted that $50 million, right? Or, or that debt gone or whatever it was. So, well, you see, there was a concerted effort to paint Jonathan Sherman as being, well, what you just read. And uh, certainly all of the breadcrumbs and all of the evidence that uh, not enough evidence to charge or convict was dropped at Jonathan's feet. But this is where the twist comes in. Because as guilty as Jonathan looks, that might not be the case. Now, is he guilty of certain things? I don't know, perhaps. But uh, um, is he... Um, is he guilty in terms of did he order this hit? This was a team effort, and a lot of people benefited from this. Trust me. And the devil isn't is always the main in the Isn't that the main reason why we will probably know the truth one day? Because the more people you include on an operation, the more chance of leaks. Right? That's just math and probability, isn't it? Absolutely. Has but let's just say Sherman, that a lot of people didn't speak up because they were guilty of certain crimes internally in that what, country, in that company. Jonathan Sherman, was he like ever named in a, in a newspaper report as a possible suspect? Kevin Donovan has alluded to it. I don't think he's ever come outright accused him, but the tone of the article is certainly focused on Jonathan Sherman from the start. So he was actually doing decent reporting. Well, if you believe the... I know it's the, hard. It's hard for anyone I know personally that knows him to give him a compliment. I, and I get it. If I you like tell somebody, Jonathan Sherman murdered these people. If you say Jonathan Sherman, Jonathan Sherman, Jonathan Sherman, and you paint him as, well, as the way he's been painted, it certainly leads the public to believe something. And, well, he'll never be caught because he has X, Y, and Z. Um, there was a murder. There was a murder for hire. This was a crime. Um, and the answer to what exactly happened is uh, it's 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 petty and it's small and it really is all about money. And uh, the answer that uh, the public might get. Yeah, it's complicated in a way, but simple in another. There was a murder committed. That murder was committed by a group of people. At least they gave the order, all trying to cover up their own financial malfeasance. Yeah. Well, listen, um, where does the police investigation, the progress of it, has it gotten to the point yet where they've questioned Jonathan Sherman as a suspect? Or do you not know that? I, I don't know if the Toronto police had imagined that they've questioned Jonathan Sherman is a suspect. Uh, um, I can't see how that wouldn't uh, take place. And uh, I'm certainly certainly not going to publicly say that Jonathan Sherman uh, murdered his parents, because I can assure you, uh, Jonathan Sherman was nowhere near that uh, uh, house on that night. That's an absolute fact. Yeah. I mean, he he didn't live out my dream, which was to kill my stepmother but that's a totally different thing but um the 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 idea of a son like it's so shakespearean you know like and and the passion and the rage i remember when the nephew was this was the suspect and yes. they were trying to attach the rage that would have had to go into the killing to that guy and i was like eh. you know like he doesn't look like a guy that has it in him he looks like one of the cowardly types i'd be like okay jonathan okay like one of those guys you know Absolutely. This is, uh, um, let's just say a lot of people were aware of what was going to happen prior to it happening. Well, see, you leave us with that. And now that what that implies is that a lot of people knew that Barry and his wife were going to get killed. That's right. 
so it has to come out eventually someone's going to be like you know what that wasn't right it was they all afraid of the sh- people in the shadows it will it will come out i mean it's uh there's a lot of I mean, there was a lot of uh, of work done. If you look at the original, some of the original articles written, um, some of the neighbors that the Shermans had in Florida at the retreat, one specifically, and how he may tie into this. Um, Appletex was owned. It was owned uh, in a shadow way by a criminal group um, that had been shadow financing and acting as uh, distributors uh, outside the lines for many years. Yeah. So, um, so just to sort of bring it back home, uh, there were uh, accusations and I think evidence of counterfeit and in some cases um, expired uh, medications that were put in the market that they shouldn't have been. Um, instead of utilizing the write-off option with expired medication, they were just selling it to see if they can make more money. Absolutely. And it was unbeknownst to the distributors, wasn't it? It was unbeknownst to uh, Apotex. I mean, uh, some of it was their stuff, but there was a lot of it that was being, but you see, the problem was a lot of the pills that made it to market were actually stamped on Apotex pill stamps, um, uh, machines, the the presses that they have. And uh, from what I can ascertain, several presses had gone missing from certain facilities, one in Winnipeg, uh, a couple in Toronto, but they were... uh, uh, let's just say unaccounted for, not stolen, just unaccounted for. And and by uh, the way, what a really shitty, like, black market business to be in. Mm, you know, terrible. Like, hey, is this life saving medication? Let's make these, or or let's give expired ones. I don't know. Well, how do you think drugs like fentanyl make it in in such massive batches? The 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 uh, precursor chemicals. Do you think they're all coming in in barrels by criminal gang? No, they're being brought in through drug companies. Yeah. And then they're sold no, um, organizations. A lot of people at home make their fentanyl now, mm-hmm. which give me the Apotex or <laughs> something or whatever it is, right? Some quality um, control. Okay. Yeah. So, Side effects of murder. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Please stop using this product if you end up dead. Right. Um, this... To me, then, um, just sort of, I, I don't want to sound like a Nancy Grace because I, I don't want to be tabloid about it. But it is interesting. Some people's potential motive are more interesting than others. Would you agree with that at least? Absolutely. Okay. And this one happens to be uh, Jonathan Sherman, just the interesting facets around him. Um, David, we're going to go, but we're going to keep plugging away on this there's other stuff in there as well we're going to come back the next time that you're on and play the audio because i think the audio will probably do but i feel like i should reach out to frank d'angelo and just let him know you know um please don't make me with the fishes and you know and, and try to be a good sport about it i don't have any animosity towards you in fact it's quite the opposite and i'm not just saying that well if you I know what is funny you know what's really funny in the sense well, that, on, that let me just finish that thought if my best friend was killed i would like do exactly what he's doing. So that's all I'm saying. I, I would do. I would be on there calling someone that I suspected of something a sociopath and a narcissist. Like, like there's no doubt in my. So, um, yeah. No, what's funny is how maligned Frank was, and and how I was uh, pointed at him, so to speak, um, and and told many things, um, and his reputation. Which, truthfully, though, it's uh, kind of funny that. Uh, when you look into it and go really deep into it, like I did, you see that uh, Frank acted incredibly honorably for his friend. In fact, more so than other people who claim to be shining paragons of virtue. What Frank did was uh, it was honorable. He was a good Well, he was a good guy, uh, at least for Barry. He seemed to be uh, a true friend, which I think Barry was sort of lacking. I mean, uh, you know, so my hat's off to him in that way. Your book's not always what they, uh, you can't judge it by its cover, right? No, but you should, because if it's good artwork, that means that the publishing company paid extra money to put it on there. That's true. And an author told me that at a conference like 10 years ago. She's like, do you ever judge a book by its cover? And I actually told her, yeah, I do. Because if I like the picture, it'll make me want to open the book. Um, And she's like, oh yeah, no, you, you have to. <laughs> She's like, if, if they spend money on artwork, then they think it's going to be a bestseller. So I was like, oh, okay, good to know. And it's Frank D'Angelo's hands are clean on this completely. I agree. 
I just touched my nose. Guys, I can't stop telling jokes. Um, I have a tooth and a hole like this this big in my face. It could all go at any minute. So I'm going to make it worth my while. Um, talking about a case that's actually really serious. But listen, the reason why we did it is because these facets, of the, these elements of the investigation are not being talked about on mainstream outlets or, you know, regular news or whatever. And um, very well be a good reason for that. <laughs> with you since i'm not privy to any of the other investigation notes maybe the cops had a good reason to keep all this information under wraps oh they did well they should have called me back i called them just like throw it up and well yeah we did a little bit but like they had an excellent I, I, I reason called them. they have an excellent reason not to call what is that back. reason you might as well say well we're going to do a few more shows but uh we're okay, laying down okay. the rocks and i'd imagine that when it's done that uh, there'll only be one answer and i think that you know that'll you, be very very apparent you look like the cover of a romance novel and it's called the tease right because now we don't know the answer until the next time that you're on black Pole. david uh we'll talk soon thanks for thanks for joining us today brother i appreciate it Galio. cheers all right david wallace um confused yeah me too the way I'm looking at it is that, okay, there's a guy named Barry Sherman and his wife named Honey. Um, several people, businesses, whatever, organizations had reasons to be like miffed at Barry. So there is a lot of people with motive. There are only a small pile of people though that benefit financially from their death. So that is probably one of the focus that, that the police, but I, I don't know. This is all speculation. I literally know nothing about how the police operate, except I think that they're trained badly and often come out a little bit more militant than they should. But in this particular case, um, it's been many years and they haven't, uh, it doesn't feel like they've gotten anywhere. At least, at least what they've re what they've released to the public. I'm sure there's definitely more behind the scenes. So we will um, continue to report the underground files of uh, of the Sherman murders. And um, yeah, we'll have something next week. Okay, so this week coming, I have Melissa Lauren on, tomorrow night actually. Melissa Lauren is a jazz singer, vocalist, artist. Um, she is also a, a buddy of mine from the, the rave scene, actually. Uh, we had the same circle of friends. It wasn't all just like, it was like a uh, crew of friends that we all hung out with. And I love Melissa. Melissa is one of those people that was just like, what do you mean someone looked at Melissa? I'll get on the next flight because she's that nice. And um, she's got a beautiful daughter and a wonderful husband who plays with her as well. So she'll be on tomorrow. And we have casual Fridays on Friday. Is that it? Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Look at that. And then next week, I'm kind of excited about this. Not kind of, I'm really excited about this. We have a man named Michael Price on the show. And he's going to come with... Da, 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 da. He's going to come with Joe Hesslinga and, and Emily Towers, are both writers for F is for Family. Michael Price is a writer for F is for Family. And he is also... Um, he has been a writer for The Simpsons for like 20 years. The last note that he sent to me says, uh, I'll touch base with the writers, and once I know they're in, I'll check with Bill. He's talking about Bill Burr. And I'm like, literally like, oh my God. Oh my fucking God. Like in my brain. And I say, okay, fair. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, Bill Burr. I want you, Michael. And I do. But I mean, Jesus Christ, Bill Burr is my, you know, I don't rank things, but he's one of my favorite comedians. And, uh, what a coup that would be if I could have Bill Burr. So that's going to be next week. Sometime between the 9th and the 12th, they're going to confirm. They're really excited to be on. Apparently, no one ever asks them to go on podcasts, which I find both sad and confusing because, uh, you know, they're writers. They're very exciting people. Now, they could often be awkward interviews. And there's, a, there's actually a, a sleazy Hollywood saying um, that goes around sets, uh, and especially with actresses. And that saying is, don't fuck the writer. That's literally the the um, advice that they give young actors. But I digress. Tomorrow we have Melissa Lauren, and we will th see you next time on Blackboard. Blackboard. Black, 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 black
Hi, I'm Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.